This is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today we have our inaugural guest, Melody Dickens. Hello. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on our show. Absolutely. I'm happy to be on. What is your background in science? What are your interests in science? Okay, so I have a degree in applied biomedical sciences. Um, I studied in Dundee, and I'm currently training to be a secondary science teacher teaching biology. And my undergraduate thesis was on a a novel method of uh, steroidogenesis, synthesizing human hormones, which basically covers, you know, everything from medical for hypothyroid, um, diabetes, and of course, HRT with older cis people and uh, trans people. Though I, though I want to be a teacher and I want that to be kind of like my bedrock, um, I, I, I do kind of want to be a um, comic writer one day and uh, possibly show and runner for um, a cartoon that I'm currently working on. My comic strip has reached, or is reaching its 250th strip, that's schmaltzy. Congrats. Yeah, I've got my first book. It's not a science book, but uh, I've got my first book out there, so that's that's kind of nice too. <laughs> so. Would you like a bit more information about the technique that I developed in... I would love to hear about that, as well as sort of the context for why a new technique might be necessary or important. Okay, well, um, you have to kind of go back uh, quite well, just before the 90s, where um, we were using uh, analogous hormones. Um, A famous example was the... um, estrogen uh, medication pre-marin which is pregnant mare urine so obviously during pregnancy an animal will produce higher amounts of estrogen uh, in the blood and urine is a way of filtering and excreting out excess amounts of things in your blood so they would basically conjugate the estrogen and that that is what used to be given to people. Now, we don't do that anymore nowadays because we got the funky technology, genetic engineering in the 90s. We can take a gene from a human, say a gene that codes for insulin or estrogen, we can basically insert that into a genetically engineered yeast into its into its genome and then it'll transcribe that as it you know normally functions and it'll produce whatever we need it to so that's that's currently how it happens so like any any i guess like transphobes and stuff that bring up oh synthetic exogenic hormones and stuff uh technically they're true that's true and that it's been synthesized and from outside of the body But if they try and claim that it's not identical to human hormones, that's a bit of a lie because we've used human genes to produce these hormones. However, the process obviously requires genetic engineering. And I um, was interested in the possibility of a process in which that wouldn't be necessary. Hmm. And um, that led me to researching uh, things like the Hella cell line, 
Are you aware? Mm. Yeah, familiar with yeah. the Hella, but for those who aren't, it's a um, line of cell cultures that are immortal because they're originally extracted from the cancer of Henrietta Lacks. And there's quite a very long and involved saga in how that cell line came to be, but they, they're a uh, preferred medium for experimentation. And um, also her cells actually are still alive, even though she is not. So they sort of outlived her, which is, um, well, it's, it's just fascinating that um, when, it, when, when a cell does turn cancerous, that uh, certain processes such as the uh, cell, so like life and death cycle and number of um, predetermined number of cell cycles before, you know, uh, it goes into apoptosis or, or, or programmed cell death. Well, basically, yeah, like that, that kind of goes out the window as well. Um, I, w- I was interested in specifically a cell line uh, called adenomas. Could you explain what adenomas are? So an adenoma is a cancer cell that has developed from a, a tissue that in its pre-cancerous state uh, was designed to produce hormones. For example, say it was a cancer that um, developed um, possibly in the pancreas. With, with the pancreas releasing insulin, the cancerous version of that cell, um, it loses its feedback mechanism, which is, again, one of the things controlling its uh, replication and, you know, and, and this is what leads to tumors and whatnot. But what's interesting is with an adenoma, it, basically the hormone production, any kind of feedback loop telling it to stop producing that hormone Um, is usually switched off and it overproduces the hormone. You could actually um, take these cells out of the body and um, since they're immortalized, the idea is that as long as you continue providing them with sera, basically the main blood constituents, that they would actually just happily go on producing that human hormone and you would never need to use uh, genetic engineering and yeast or any any of the, those other steps because yeah essentially you had an omens to do it for you so um my my graduate project looked at different uh sites from the body and i believe i even um got to work with hella cell line as well um just as a control but uh yeah it's it involved using hplc which um is basically, it's a very big machine, but essentially does the same job as a tricorder in Star Trek, where you would uh, put a sample in it and, you know, just sort of say, this this thing is 20% this compound, 80% this compound. Like, the actual science of it is all to do with, like, spectroscopy and how, how certain compounds are absorbed on different frequencies and there's a different fingerprint. But basically, it's the tricor from Star Trek is the easiest way. I, I really appreciate how on the level of this podcast you are, because we have, <laughs> we've recorded two Star Trek episodes so far. Oh, well. <laughs> Baby, you got to believe we're going to record more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So the, the tricorder, so it's oh, 20% oxygen gym and stuff that does exist, although it's a very large machine with a sort of cake dish that moves around that sort of takes samples, forces it through a tube, 
and you have two big bottles of uh, solvents sitting on top of the machine that you have to fill up and, and stuff a bit like a water cooler. Very bizarre process, but I, I, I loved every minute of it. Uh, so, so basically, I, I did show that it, it's, it is a viable method of uh, synthesizing and extracting uh, human hormone actually produced by cancer cells that have since been removed from the body and made useful again. So there's a couple of complications with it, though, as well, because obviously cancer cells, though that immortalized nature thing as is, is brilliant, it can still be tricky to um, sort of maintain. Well, what are like mutation rates like in cancerous cells? Um, well, this is the other thing as well. Obviously, with with the with the yeast, it's fairly standardized. We have the entire genome mapped out. So, if anything ever goes wrong, which sometimes it does, in, in sort of genetic and and engineered yeast to produce insulin hormones and whatnot, it's a fairly simple fix. Uh, using human cancer cells, though, of course, they're you've got a much bigger genome to worry about and so of course there is an issue there so yeah i'd say i'd say in terms of that would maybe mean that the other uh, method isn't viable but i i still think that there is um there's a simpler way around this so i know people in the brewing industry talk about domesticated yeast as what they use for their fermentation process would it be fair to call these potentially domesticated cancer cells <laughs> yes i suppose so <laughs> but i mean that's that's the other thing as well is that i find it so fascinating um that we you know yeast cells have been used for so long even before medicine with Obviously, things like beer and bread and all sorts of things. So uh, we've essentially been putting yeast to work for quite a while, even without properly realizing what it was. Oh, but speaking of Star Trek, I uh, don't want to get too off topic. Favorite series? So Okay, so this is actually interesting. Maybe it's not, but I am a big Star Trek fan. Um, I've watched all of TOS, TNG, DS9, variety of the movies... Um, and I tried watching Voyager, couldn't get into it, and then never got into Enterprise because I wasn't that interested. So my favorite series is Deep Space Nine. But Tessa, she is a she's a fake geek girl, and we gotta boot her out of the pod. I I will say I am not. I'm I'm much more of a a filthy casual fan, um, in that I have not like done any watch throughs of the entire series but and this is why america is failing yes yes i'm <laughs> single-handedly responsible for all of it um i grew up watching the next generation so i you know i have a lot of fuzzy nostalgia feelings for it however with that said as i've gotten older i've gotten more of an appreciation for deep space nine because i feel like it was a more mature and sophisticated show you can't mm -hmm. see me but i am i am pumping my fist <laughs> rigorously well, I can, I can, I can, I can say um, the the best series is. I'm sorry, but it's Voyager and DS9. There is no trekking in this series. If you want, they go into the gamma quadrant through a wormhole. That's barely trekking. You're, you're <laughs> skipping over space time. It doesn't count. I mean, I know that whole warp is, but in a, in a way, but it's more like a bubble. That anyway, I'm not going to get into that. But basically, there's the, there are three ways to do things: the right way, the wrong way, and the Jane way. And my favorite is the third option. That's perfectly valid. 
So you said that you're training to be a secondary school teacher, right? Yes. Whenever I hear of people being, just anybody being a secondary school teacher, I think bravest person in the world. Um, Children are terrifying. And then additionally, being trans, do you ever have anxiety about how you might be perceived by students or by parents or by your colleagues? Well, absolutely I did at first, and it was nerve-wracking to go in front of students. However, what I'm coming to realize is that it doesn't really matter who's standing up at the front of the class. Uh, For the most part, kids are going to hate you because you are forcing them to stay in a room for several hours every single day and meet with information. That's that's comforting in an ironic way. However, I think, um, you know, look, I passed fairly well. Um, so obviously I, I, I don't really bring it up, but there was a, a student that I had that was actually trans as well. And she asked me, are, you know, are you trans and, and stuff? And I was worried about answering but I said yeah I I am and I I think it's it's kind of scary but I think I think where we're at is sort of where the gay community was maybe a few decades ago this whole ask don't tell sort of thing right right Mm. and like I don't know how much longer it will be but when I'm teaching, basically, I'm there to teach. So steering back towards sort of science and a career in science, is there a reason you decided to move from research into teaching? Well, I, I, I suppose it's it's the same reason that I do comics. Ideally, I, I, I want to be able to sort of share my knowledge and also help other people's interest grow. In a subject, I suppose, like one of the moments for me when I realized this was something that we call isolation. I don't know if you have that in American schools. Basically, they're removed from the classes for the rest of the day. I was told basically they just need to sit in silence and do the work that's given in front of them and stuff. And I could see that there was, you know, they were grinding through it and they weren't in- interested in it. And I, from what I know about conditioning, I could tell that this this isn't going to help them, right? Because they're hating it and they're going to form that negative association with the work that they're doing. So basically, I just, I brought up glow-in-the-dark rabbits. And they just looked at me and they were like, what? And I was like, glow-in-the-dark rabbits? Are you aware that these exist? And then obviously there was an interest there. It's like, what do, what do you mean glow-in-the-dark rabbits? And I said, well, basically we uh, take a gene from jellyfish in the same way that you know what i mentioned with yeast earlier genetic engineering i went through the process uh, uh, process of how we take this gene that codes for an enzyme that makes them glow and we pop it into a rabbit zygote when it's a single cell so all the cells that duplicate from then on all express that enzyme that makes them glow and then we have glow-in-the-dark rabbits. And they said, can I see it? And so, of course, you know, I brought it up on my computer screen, swiveled it around so that they could see these rabbits glowing in the dark, like something from a Marvel comic book. But it's reality, and it's what we can do with science. And suddenly, they were they were just enthralled, and they needed to know more. And I think 
this is what a lot of, you know, like rote teaching when it comes to sort of science and stuff is, is failing these kids on because you need, you need that initial spark of, oh my God, that's really cool. And I even had one other student, so like saying, wait, but is that right though? Like, do the rabbits enjoy it or does that hurt them, you know? And it's like, okay, so now you're going into bioethics, um, which is like an even more advanced, uh, so, you know, Bloom's taxonomy of uh, hierarchical learning is that you're actually analyzing it, which is like just one level below uh, synthesis, which is right at the top of the pyramid. It's, it's like really advanced learning is to actually evaluates and analyze so like what you're seeing and whatnot they, they were filled with so many questions it was like well what's the other applications and i said well if you can um if we could somehow splice this animal gene into a plant's genome to produce the enzyme in the same way if you put it into a tree seed for example then you've got a tree that glows in the dark vis-a-vis you have bioluminescent lampposts that will never need electricity. And again, it's just, yeah, that, 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 that look of wonder on their face is, is just like, I live for that. Um, just, just to sort of see, like, basically the cogs that were just grinding before just free up and start sort of whirring with, like, possibilities and ideas. When it comes to proper sourcing on the internet, I think that should play an intrinsic part of what you're teaching. It, it, it doesn't need to be something that's forced, but it's, it's, it's just, um, if you are looking for information on this, these are, you know, the places to go look for it. I, I mean, we have that already in universities, you know, proper referencing. But I find it, I find it bizarre that this kind of thing just sort of starts at university and didn't start younger. This, this idea of being able to fact check information. Although it does, it does make me hopeful that kids are, because I know that I've grown up in a like an age of misinformation with the internet and, you know, thing, things like uh, reverse image searches are like second nature to a lot of my generation, uh, but might not be to the older generation. So, you know, things can be uh, sourced and searched for. So I think, I think it's, it's not just about them, yeah, seeking the information, but also guiding them in the, the right way. So say if it was a science reference, uh, pointing them in the direction of NCBI or PubMed or, you know, if, it, if it's to do with medicine, that, that sort of thing. What immediately comes to mind with regards to legitimacy of scientific sources is we're all on Twitter and we're all trans. And so we've probably all seen that recent PNAS study on um, robust physiological evidence for the existence of bisexual men. (laughs) But the thing is, if you weren't already um, keyed into how that's (laughs) trash and nonsense, and that that guy is a famous, like, trans misogynist, you would see PNAS and think, oh, this this is a legitimate thing. But that seems a broader, and particularly... I wonder if there's anything here. It, it, it seems like legitimacy of sources is maybe it's it's easier to evaluate the legitimacy of, for instance, just a straightforward um, like medical science study where it's this is what we did and this is what we saw, where it's more about external observation of fairly objective phenomena versus the PNAS bisexuality study where the flaw is not necessarily in the methodology. It's in the assumptions 
before you even yeah. get to methodology? Um, well, I think I think also like even the recent study J.K. Rowling put out. At first, I was a bit oh Cambridge was quite a prestigious institution and stuff. Then I looked at it, and it's actually from Cambridge Press. And yeah, they do oh, they yeah. do print yeah. you know a lot of like scientific articles, and they also print Bibles. And it's like <laughs> that seems to be quite a quite a mixed bag of things that you print there. So it's and again, like in the sources, they asked a trans woman and uh, a detransitioner. It's like you asked two people, and and you know what comes to mind as well is the Lisa Lippman study. Oh, I'm actually not familiar with this study. This was the infamous rapid onset gender dysphoria study. Oh, yep. And okay. um, apparently, the basis of finding a new medical condition that isn't recognized by the APA or any psychological, you know, society is what an anti-LGBT parents forum says in a survey. It's 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 a big thing that goes all the way back to the uh, John Money so like experiments, which um, I, I assume that you're familiar with. Uh, yep, yep. I feel like I've heard about this, but uh, I can't he was actually. The one where he, um, the David Raymer case, a, a, a boy lost his genitalia in a circumcision accident. Oh, of course, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and he, and John Money said, "Oh, that's no problem. Just raise him as a girl. It'll be fine." And spoilers, it was not fine. <laughs> oh, I read the book about this. There's like the boy who was raised as a girl. Yeah. Which was one of, I like I went through a phase when I was like 15 of just reading all of the books about trans people in the library, but none of them helped me realize that I was trans because they were all by cis people. The reason I bring it up is because I think it is actually kind of interesting because it not it not only is a good way to explain what a gender identity is to a cis person, but it also shows where this conflation comes from between gender stereotypes and one's gender identity. Basically, what Dr. Money was trying to do was to show that this innate sense of being male or female um, or something else is uh, learnable. So he called it gender identity, as in an identity that's like gender, as in something that's like the gender stereotypes and gender expression, right? So yeah, he, and another part, there was a lot of things that were floating around at the time. Another part of this was um, that they were looking for a justification for early corrective surgery of intersex children, which was a very common practice during the day. And now, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, still now, which, um, but like one one of the main issues was, well, what if they have this internal sense that they're born with, but obviously will manifest later in life, and we make the wrong decision. So he was, he basically was going to say, well, okay, we'll, we'll use this as an experiment, as a control, and they, they, they would try and impose a gender identity using stereotypes and whatnot and, you know, raising David as a girl and whatnot. But usually most people are born cis and I'm pretty sure like in David's case, this, this was the case. And so what he actually ended up doing was giving cis child gender dysphoria and yep. so, yeah, it, it, it shows that no amount of stereotypes was going to change his gender identity. 
Um, but unfortunately, the term is stuck to describe this internal sense of being male or female. And um, now, um, even even though the APA very clearly distinguishes these three terms, you know, gender expression, gender stereotypes, and gender identity, gender identity being a thing that's not entirely formed by culture necessarily or, or stereotypes but by one's internal sense of being male or female it, it, it's kind of the terms have sort of muddied themselves together or at least in mainstream understanding of it because you know they've not they've not looked into the glossary in terms of the APA because <laughs> um, it's very dry and very boring so <laughs> I wonder if there is any evidence to support the idea that a, a significant number of people have ever thought that they might be trans and then be acted on transitioning on the primary or exclusive basis of fitting into gendered expectations of their non-birth assigned gender? Well, I mean, it's again. This this is where it sort of crosses over into uh, gay rights as well, because a lot of gay people will show cross gender stereotype behavior when they're younger. Well, just to inter- because I am gay, Tessa is gay. Yep, same. Yeah, so <laughs> just a bunch of homosexuals on this message, um, and so, but specifically. It's it's interesting looking back at my childhood because I was simul- I was exhibiting cross gender behavior regardless of the lens that you were looking at me through because if you were perceiving me as a girl I didn't wear girls clothing I liked Lego a, a bunch of that kind of stuff but then if you are in retrospect perceiving me as a boy I also love musical theater I played with dolls a lot. I liked um, dressing up as characters, including one character who, in retrospect, is is just my eight year old self inventing drag queens. And so, and so, parsing cross gender behavior from within the context of a gay trans child is is very complicated and weird. Oh, I agree. Um, I, w- I was about to jump in. You know, I had a very similar situation in that had I been raised as a cis girl, I would have been a massive tomboy. I mean, I was not ever the most masculine of children, but I definitely, a lot of the stuff I was into was considered traditionally to be masculine. I, I mean, like, well, I mean, even even myself, I was, like, equally, equally fan of Dragon Ball Z and also Sailor Moon. Like, it, it extends even outside of the LGBT community because you, you, you get parents that are petrified of letting, like, say it's just a cis straight boy or a cis straight girl, even, even dabbling with cross-gender behavior because they think that that's going to turn them gay or that's going to turn them trans. And I mean, clearly it's it's, it's not about stereotypes, but it's, it's hard to move away from that kind of conflation, at least in the public eye, because they think that it, it you know, it, it, it's to do with that when really it's... You know, like you could take the entirety of like society away from me, I'd still be more comfortable being female. Exactly. Or- yeah. This is a great segue into our recurring segment that hasn't recurred yet, but is going to, which is 
is it gay if it's in space? (laughs) So much of being trans and being gay, being anything, is culturally contextual, where the same underlying experience has recurred throughout human history, but the specific cultural parameterizing of it as this is being gay, this is being trans, this is whatever, shifts. And so how how is that like like in Star Trek, do we not see any gay people because Gene Roddenberry didn't think to include them and also TV censorship? Or do we not see any gay people because gay as an identity has dissolved like cotton candy and water? You know, that's a good question. I suspect there's always going to be at least a little bit of an identity wrapped up with it, just because it is something that's different from the norm. It may not be as important. It may be more like being, oh, I'm left-handed, you know, that, well, I'm not actually left-handed, but if I were, you know, nobody really thinks about that as being odd. They did once, you know, at one point people tried to correct people who are left-handed. They don't do that anymore, thankfully. But, you know, on the other hand, I'm sure you can find shirts or whatever, about let's say oh you know kiss me I'm left-handed or or whatever I I can imagine something like that occurring where it's probably not quite as much of a marked cultural identity the way it is now but there's still something there there's still you know a shared common experience that is a community could form around yeah I think so and and in in that um uh, like a, a person did once ask me, you know, what, what, why is the LGBT together? Like considering one is about sexuality and one is about like the sex that you are and stuff. It, it is that shared commonality that 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 experience of having who you are, which is relates to physical uh, sex, not not the act, but like the noun. Yeah, like one's sexual phenotype and who you're attracted to and whatnot but something that is not as common as the norm, but, um, you know, you, you've, you've been, like, subject to pathologization of who you are and discrimination. I think, um, th- though that's not what makes you gay or trans, I, I think that that is that shared experience that's the reason for the solidarity that's shared between sort of uh, trans and gay people. Personally, when I see so like people trying to split up the LGBT, I, I I just I just love it that yeah no we've got we've got each other's backs and I don't care how angry that makes bigots. If anything, that makes me smile a little bit. Well, and there's also just that statistically more trans people than cis people identify as non-straight. For whatever reason. Because what, what they say, it's about a 30-30 split between like gay, straight, and bisexual. Yeah, and trans- that's, that's what I've seen. I know that there's a 10 out there floating around, so that's not good maths. But <laughs> This isn't a math podcast. This is a science podcast. <laughs> We're lower down the hierarchy. <laughs> Inevitably, circle back to Star Trek. But just as an example... Because it's just always my first point of reference for science fiction, which is not great, I guess, but whatever. And so then there's the question of, in the Star Trek future, cosmetic surgery and all surgery really has progressed to the point where you can have major image altering 
procedures done and, and nobody would ever know. So like theoretically in the Star Trek future, you would have the reality where if you were say a trans child, you could effectively have a suite of hormonal and surgical interventions at an early enough day in your life that nobody would ever know that you had physically been otherwise. And in that context, is there still trans identity and the possibility for trans community? Well, I suppose it would open up the whole, so like, spell thing being even, even, so like a, a, a bigger thing because it's, it's it's like you would never have to tell anyone that you were anything other. I I don't know. I think again it would it, it would be personal preference. But me personally, if I was if I was in that kind of future, I would I, I'd still want to be honest and tell other people so that they wouldn't feel as alone, even if they never you know came out publicly. Right. Um, no, I get that. I think there would still be a trans community, even if, like, you know, we're rewriting DNA with CRISPR and everything. Mm-hmm. And you're still going to get transphobes that would be like, well, you weren't a male zygote or a female zygote. So, uh. But I do I do find it interesting. Um, a, a big time saver when it comes to talking with transphobes. Uh, to see whether it's just a very, you know, deeply held assumption and whether there's wiggle room um, or whether it is just faith that they have that, you know, like trans people will never be the thing that they transition to is I'll reframe the, um, you know, the age old atheist question Mm. of what evidence can I provide to you to show you that God isn't real and stuff, right? If you, if you said that to a, you know, a believer of the faith that isn't skeptical in any way, and they said, well, nothing, because what I believe what I know to be true and right. stuff, you know that there's no point in arguing with this person into the hours of the night because that's what they believe. Right, right. There, there's, there's no convincing. Well, any evidence to the contrary is already rejected before you even began your conversation. And I, I usually say this, and some I get mixed responses. If you just ask a transphobe, what evidence can it, because, you know, you can use so many different methods of reasoning, um, such as, you know, phenotype or secondary sex characteristics, or, you know, any of these things, endocrinology, physiology, bone structure, uh, higher risk of breast cancer, or, you know, sex-specific conditions. Right. But if you just ask them, what evidence can I show you to even consider trans people as a sex they transition to? And if they say something along the lines of i'll never do that because i i believe what i know to be true you're dealing with a matter of faith and again even even in that future where everything is rewritten about the person to their very genome and they have the right chromosomes and everything they're still not going to so like see a trans person yeah there's that's a a bridge they cannot and will not cross regardless of what's actually possible and what the context is but like I, I also find the uh, context discussion interesting because it got me thinking about science as well. I also have a lot of friends that are quite far to the right, and the thing that they struggled with a lot is that uh, they said, "Oh, I'm getting conflicting messages here because a trans person will say that you know there's a biological aspect to sex, but it's also a social construction." 
again, it like I I I, I have to explain to right, them right, and right, like, right. Uh, sit yeah. them down, and they've been happy with this explanation that though there's a biological aspect to it, just like race, the way that we categorize what is say a black or a white person is entirely sort of kind of socially constructed where we draw that line. It's it's ultimately arbitrary. Yeah. Back to back to my area of expertise. It, it a lot of the social construction stuff I think can feel a bit namby pamby to people, but it's it's a very rigorously scientific way of considering these things, I think, because even in totally non-sociological concepts, we still have to grapple with uncertain boundaries, like in species. Like a species is theoretically a thing, but the conversation on whether species actually exist and how to draw distinctions around species is not settled, and it probably never will be, because the reality is that a species is a broad grouping that has a biological reality, but when you try to narrow in very, very closely on what the exact parameters are, you are always going to end up with edge cases, with exceptions, with weird situations. And so the best you can do is sort of a a broad use that in any particular individual example might not hold a perfect example of that is that we're still arguing over what a coconut is i actually don't know about this can you talk about this well what is a coconut is it a seed a fruit or a nut oh oh yeah that's a good point but i mean even even with in um sort of uh, biology there's disagreements about the coconut because there's there's obviously the the phenotypic classification I mean, also from a genetic standpoint, you can say, no, it's more it's, it's closely related to this. I, I, I can't remember, but like, I do know that scientists, after all these years, are still buzzing heads over this. It's, it's, it's not even just related to biology. And I realized that it actually, it plays into the scientific hierarchy. As you move down that hierarchy, even as soon as you get to physics, you start to deal in subjective understandings of things, such as uh, the electromagnetic spectrum. It's made up of lots of different segments based on uh, its utility to us and what the different segments can do. It's all part of the same spectrum. It's all the same stuff. But we don't see it as the same stuff, again, because of our social construction around understanding electromagnetic energy and how it interacts with the world. So, again, you you could say, ah, visible light is one part of the electromagnetic spectrum. But is it? Or is it seven parts of the electromagnetic spectrum? This is seven colors. So so this is is where that um, social construction comes into it. And I think, I think, again, I'm not sure why it's a left-wing, right-wing kind of divide, but I've just noticed that among my right-wing friends, um, just explaining that clears up a lot of misconceptions when people say that, you know, sex is a social construct, but also there's biological aspects to it. But again, only in the sense that, of like, statistical probabilities, um... Like they, they claim that they're race realists or they're, you know, they just believe in simple sex biology. And it's like, you know, that they actually think that biology is simple. If 
things were to be stagnant, especially within life, you know, life dies. And I mean, this this um, ultimately, I think, goes back to, you've probably heard the term sex is immutable floating around, claiming to be scientific. Yeah. Well, I, I, I decided, oh, I might, yeah. I might have a look for this, sci- this fabled science book that says sex is immutable because I've got some issues with that. I couldn't find that. I could find a text that looks into what sex is that sort of said that, well, genotypic sex is largely immutable not entirely and uh, phenotypic sex is modifiable so absolutely changeable through hormones and environments and treatments so then i wondered so where is this term sex is immutable coming from and then i looked up genesis and there it was god made man and woman male and female and it was good he put you together in his womb and made you male and female. And it's like, ah, that scientific text. So it's bizarre because can you imagine making that claim of any other aspect of biology that it's immutable, that's unchangeable? Because how would we evolve? I mean, I I can't, but I am also a, a biologist. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah. But like, you know, you age, your genotype stayed relatively the same. I mean, you lost a bit of it as you got older, but that, you know, your, your genes stayed the same, but you're not the same organism you were when you were born. Right. Well, it's the classic joke of, I was, yes, I was born a woman. I was born a fully formed adult <laughs> human woman. It was a real tough birth. <laughs> or it's that character from Matilda, uh, Miss Trunchbull. She was never a child. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed having you on. Yeah, agreed. Do you have any sort of final thoughts that you want to put out there? I'm terrible at self-promoting. So, uh, Schmaltzy. I have, a, I have a, a strip on Twitter. You can follow me there. Melody Dickens. And I have a book on Amazon, which is the first 200 strips. But also... Um, on, on the actual uh, trans stuff, I suppose someone who says that biology is simple has not understood or respected the study of life itself. Good note to end on. Yeah, yeah, that's great. This was Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. You can find me at Cockroach Arles on Twitter. And you can find me at Spacermace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E on Twitter. And you can find the podcast at ASABpod on Twitter or at ASABpodcast.com.